to spiritual storytelling. I am super excited to share this episode with you today. So we're working with a piece that holds a special place in my heart. Um, A lot of these do, but this one especially. So Edgar Allan Poe taught me a lot about the power of language and writing and how to find and destroy inherently limiting beliefs. He's a guy that's as funny as he is scary and as self-obsessed as he is tragic. And that just makes him so human. So let me know if you enjoy this foray into Poe's magnum opus. Before I can even attempt to summarize Eureka, I need to explain to you that this is not a simple thing to do. Eureka was adapted from what I imagine was a very coherent and riveting lecture about Poe's concept of God, the origins of the universe, and the reflections he had upon studying the cosmological research of his day. His presentation of this information wanders into very technical realms, and I'll be the first to admit that some of it still goes over my head. That said, I'm going to summarize and distill the general framework of Poe's argument so that we can get a sketch, a rough outline, of the picture he's painting. If I lose you at any point in this, just hang on. I promise it's worth it. So Eureka has two separate but intrinsically linked parts. Initially, Poe tackles how we deal with truth on a social and intellectual level. He breaks down philosophical history, attempting to show its inherent limitations and asserting that there are other, more shadowy roads to truth. Things like dreams, intuitions, and other creative means will get us to the same truths, just via a different route. He argues that these have always been a part of our intellectual process, but we have rejected them and tried to claim only that which we can fit in as factual. This framework laid, he moves into his theory on the universe and the divine, where he dives into his ideas on perfect unity, expansion, and collapse. We begin, essentially, with this. I designed to speak of the physical, metaphysical, and mathematical, of the material and spiritual universe, of its essence, its origin, its creation, its present condition, and its destiny. Oh, okay, so is that all? Before he gets too far in explaining exactly what this looks like, our narrator decides to share with us excerpts from a letter found in a bottle from miraculously the year 2848. The writer is describing to their friend how sad and strange the world must have been so long ago, before it liberated itself from the confines of only a priori and a posteriori truth. Meaning, essentially, that Poe is saying that the pillars of philosophy that we still uphold today are antiquated and limiting. The writer here is hilariously describing the history of these two frames of thought from the perspective of someone far in the future, disbelieving that people could be so backwards. Almost like we would say to a friend, like, hey, can you believe that people really actually used to think that there were giants in South America? He spells out the Aristotelian framework, saying that a man once lived whose name was Ares Tottle, letting us know that Ares means ram, whose fame depended mainly upon his demonstration that sneezing is a natural provision by means of which over-profound thinkers are enabled to expel superfluous ideas through the nose. Honestly, this is absolutely hilarious. Like, this is arguably the greatest philosophical mind in human history, and Poe really just came for him, saying he basically sneezes out bullshit. Like, that's gold. Our writer then goes on to explain what else Aristotle is known for, 
the a priori or self-evident truth, also known as axioms. So a priori truths or axioms are truths that can be discovered without experience. They are inherent and logical. So two plus two equals four is something we can figure out without actually adding physical things together and counting the results. Another example would be all bachelors are unmarried men. We don't have to know every bachelor to know that this is true. It's evident because bachelors are unmarried men by definition, or there can't be a round square. He goes on to describe how these ideas reign supreme until a man named Hogg, here he means Francis Bacon, introduced a posteriori truth. These are truths that are evident through experience, things we can only know through the sensed experience. For example, my dog has fleas, or I am in pain. He describes these two groups as dogmatic and all-encompassing. They are the ones who decide what truth is and why it gets to be considered so. He goes on to say, Many of these Bacon-engendered philosophers, one-idead, one-sided, and lame of leg, were more wretchedly helpless, more miserably ignorant in view of all of the comprehensible objects of knowledge than the veriest unlettered hind who proves that he knows something at least in admitting that he knows absolutely nothing. He describes how they don't care at all about the end discovery, only about the means with which they were reached. If the way to knowledge did not fall into one of these two categories, the whole theory is then dismissed, as is the person who came up with it. Our writer continues, Baconians, or Hogites, as he likes to call them, are like the wiseacre who think that things can be seen more clearly if only we hold them closer to the eyes. They are infatuated with detail, and what is determined factual was set in stone, whether factual or not. This is problematic because he says we've placed power in the hands of merely perceptive men, whose facts are valuable depending on the fact of their fact. These individuals, a more intolerant, a more intolerable set of bigots and tyrants never existed on the face of the earth. Their creed, their text, and their sermon were alike the one word fact, but for the most part, even of this one word, they knew not even the meaning. On those who ventured to disturb their facts with the view of putting them in order and to use, the disciples of Hogg had no mercy whatever. All attempts at generalization were met at once by the words theoretical, theory, theorist. All thought, to be brief, was very promptly resented as a personal affront to themselves. Wow. Okay, so moving back to the absurdity of the Aristotelian thought process, our writer then suggests that no such things as axioms ever existed or could possibly exist. He goes on to explain that a tree, we think, cannot both be a tree and not a tree at the same time. This is a pretty commonly upheld axiomatic truth that paradoxes can't exist. But why is that so? Isn't it because we can't conceive of it being so? Like, we can't conceive of a tree being both a tree and not a tree at the same time. Well, Poe then addresses this and says that if ability to conceive is to be taken as a criterion of truth, then a truth to David Hume would very seldom be a truth to Joe. And he's saying, essentially, you know, that the average guy, what the average guy can conceive of as true is going to vary pretty, pretty greatly from a mind like Descartes or some, you know, great 
scientist or philosopher. And so therefore, our ability to conceive of something should not make it inherently true or untrue. So here we begin to see the first step Poe aims to take in Eureka. He's asserting that the two modes of thought that dominated science and philosophy have left much to be desired, and yet were the exclusive means of determining what knowledge is. We begin to see exactly what he thinks they have missed when he says, intuition was but the conviction resulting from deductions or inductions of which the processes were so shadowy as to have escaped our consciousness, eluded reason, or bidden defiance to our capacity of expression. So as we move into Eureka proper, we begin to see why this step defines the piece. So he says, we have now attained a point where only intuition can aid us. But now let me recur to the idea which I have already suggested as that alone which we can properly entertain of as intuition. It is but the conviction arising from those inductions or deductions of which the processes are so shadowy as to escape our consciousness, elude our reason, or defy our capacity of expression. So we begin by asking, what is the most simplistic matter? Like, where do we start? What's, what's the simplest starting point? And Poe answers, unity, oneness. So essentially a gray blob that isn't even gray, but is completely devoid of differentiation. Nothing can be distinguished from anything else. We cannot define it because we can't say what it is rather than what it is not. It is just this perfect unity. Oneness then is all that I predicate of the originally created matter. But I propose to show that this oneness is a principle abundantly sufficient to account for the constitution, the existing phenomenon, and the plainly ineffable annihilation of at least the material universe. Suppose saying that oneness is enough. It's enough to explain everything around us. It's enough to explain creation. It's enough to explain where we are now. And it's enough to explain complete destruction of the universe. So he says that creation has happened as a result of forcing the originally and therefore normally one into the abnormal condition of many. So this is where we start talking about atoms. And when he starts talking about atoms, he is saying essentially that unity being their source and difference from unity, the character and the design manifested in their diffusion we are warranted in supposing this character to be at least generally preserved throughout the design and to form a portion of the design itself. Okay, I know, this is a lot. So this is basically what we're saying is that to uphold the act of creation, which is separating this giant blob of unity, in order to uphold that and in order for that to take place, in order for things to become different to begin with, a process has to be built in that upholds this differentiation. So if this process were not to take place, everything would snap back together into the state of unity. So what is this process that has to be kind of implanted in this whole system? Well, Poe says that that is electricity. And here he explains, difference is their character, their essentiality just as no difference was the essentiality of their source. When we say then that an attempt to bring any two of these atoms together would induce an effort on the part of the repulsive influence to prevent the contact, we may as well use the strictly convertible sentence 
that an attempt to bring together any two differences will result in a development of electricity. So what we're saying here is that all things are drawn towards their normal state, that is, towards unity. Hence, we have gravity, you know, matter seeks other matter. And when two things are in danger of becoming one, we get this electrical force, which acts as the repellent to keep things differentiated. So he goes on to explain in several different ways, um, in varying degrees of, you know, flowery language, but he says that each atom attracts and sympathizes with the most delicate movement of every other atom, and with each and with all at the same time and forever, and according to a determinate law of which the complexity, even considered by itself solely, is utterly beyond the grasp of the imagination of man. Does not so evident a brotherhood among atoms point to a common parentage? Does not a sympathy so omniprevalent, so ineradicable, and so thoroughly irrespective suggest a common paternity at its source? That all things, and all thoughts of things, with all their ineffable multiplicity of relation, spring at once into being from the primordial and irrelative one. That God, the material and spiritual God, now exists solely in the diffused matter and spirit of the universe, and that the regathering of this diffused material and spirit will be but the reconstitution of the purely spiritual and individual God. So, if everything that is represents the pieces of God, and the parts of this perfect unity that have been shattered and differentiated, Poe asks us, are we not then justified in our belief that the processes we have here ventured to contemplate will be renewed forever and forever and forever, a novel universe swelling into existence and then subsiding into nothingness at every throb of the heart divine? And now, this heart divine, what is it? It is our own. So put in different terms, it can be summarized when he says that there was once an epoch in the night of time when a still existent being existed, one of an absolutely infinite number of similar beings, the absolutely infinite domains of the absolutely infinite space. It was not and is not in the power of this being, any more than it is in your own, to extend by actual increase the joy of his existence. But just as it is in your power to expand or to concentrate your pleasures, the absolute amount of happiness remaining always the same, so did and does a similar capacity appertain to this divine being, who thus passes his eternity in perpetual variation of the concentrated self and almost infinite self-diffusion. What you call the universe is but his present expansive existence, he now feels his life through an infinity of imperfect pleasures, the partial and pain-intertangled pleasures of those conceivably numerous things which you designate as his creatures, but which are really infinite individualizations of himself. All these creatures, all, those which you turn animate, as well as those to whom you deny life for no better reason than you do not behold it in operation, 
All of these creatures have, in a greater or less degree, a capacity for pleasure and for pain. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, what Poe is saying here is that we were all made from the same star stuff. In the beginning, there was a mass of everything that is, all compounded together in this state of perfect unity. And this unity is what we call God. In order to increase the amount of things that bring pleasure to this being, it decided to shatter itself forth into everything that exists. Gravity represents the tendency for atoms to return to the state of unity, while electricity represents the repulsive force that upholds this act of creation. Over time, we will all return to this perfect state, and the process will repeat itself, so small in the scope of divine time as to be a mere heartbeat, a moment. So before we even begin to get into this whole gorgeous mess, I want to bring up a few things. Firstly, there's a major issue when it comes to asking what this work means. Poe had very specific ideas that he laid out for what constitutes poetry, and he says that this is not the realm of truth, but the realm in which to create beauty. This alone makes people wonder if he's being authentic. Also, there's that pesky word prose. He identifies Eureka as a prose poem. And prose essentially means a piece of writing that is free-flowing and basically not limited to a certain structure like rhyme or meter. So not poetry. <laughs> what do the readers do with that? Poe then complicates things when he opens Eureka with this. To the few who love me and whom I love, to those who feel rather than to those who think, to the dreamers and those who put faith in dreams as the only realities. I offer this book of truths, not in character of truth-teller, but for the beauty that abounds in truth, constituting it as true. To these I present the composition as an art product alone, or, if I be not urging too lofty a claim, as a poem. What I here propound is true, and therefore it cannot die, or if by any means it be now trodden down so that it die, it will rise again to the life everlasting. Nevertheless, it is as a poem only that I wish this work to be judged after I am dead. So people think this is a great big hoax. Um, some other people think it's like only poetry or it's only something flowery or something Poe wrote to sound pretty and create beauty from the world around him. And then some other people say that it should be read as a bad scientific article proposing pseudoscientific discoveries. Others still propose that it should be read as a philosophical treatise on how knowledge is gained. So you can kind of start to see some issues. The literature faculty really don't want to deal with it because it's complicated and sciency. The science faculty doesn't want to deal with it because it's imaginative and flowery and poetic. And the philosophy faculty are pretty much just mad that he called them tyrants and hogites, which is, I mean, to me, it's just absolutely hilarious, but, you know. But back to genre, the complication comes because what makes good science makes bad poetry and vice versa. No one knows if Eureka is good because what is it? No one knows if it's true because is it even trying to be? And this brings me to... The critical reception and legacy of Eureka. So people did not and sort of still don't know what to do with this piece. 
part of the reason is the genre issue we just discussed, but part of it was because so many of Poe's gorgeous images later looked very similar to actual scientific discovery. It's not hard to see glimmers of the Big Bang Theory in his primordial particle, bursting forth to create all that is. The Big Bang was really proposed much later, in 1927. Yet to say that Poe prefigured this is to make a complicated and controversial statement, to say the least. Much of Eureka is Poe summarizing, refuting, dissecting, and rewriting the cosmological theories of his day to varying degrees of accuracy. And this is according to people that are smart enough to know, which is not me. But to give you an idea, in his book, Edgar Allan Poe, Eureka and Scientific Imagination, David Stamos touches on this this piece of kind of the critical reception. He explains that T.S. Eliot readily dismisses Eureka as producing no deep impression on its readers because they're aware of Poe's lack of qualification in philosophy, theology, or natural science. So naturally, I have some thoughts on these complications and how they can help us understand healing in a new context. First, I think Eureka is supposed to be literary. It's supposed to be a poem because what he is suggesting, especially in this genre issue, is that what is fiction or what is metaphor can also be a deeper, truer kind of truth, hence wanting it to be judged as a poem. Because if poems are not the place for literal truth, they may yet be the place for something deeper and more resonant. So it's said that this is not a scientific piece because Poe is not a scientist. Critics claim several flaws in his mathematic and scientific assumptions which led him to this epic conclusion. But this only confirms what we heard in the beginning, that the intellectual critics see the means as more important than the ends. That the defining truth of mankind is often determined by the gatekeepers with a limited view of what constitutes truth and an over-reliance on facts or fact of their fact. Despite criticisms, it can be seen clearly that Poe anticipates scientific discoveries of the early 20th century, if only in a metaphorical, spiritual way. But is that cause for us to say that he didn't anticipate them? When the Big Bang Theory is the most commonly accepted scientific theory of the origins of the universe, does that not illustrate that metaphor and intuition can actually be linked to what we consider truth? Just like mythology might tell us the same truths that psychology, sociology, and even neuroscience might later prove? This is a piece that gorgeously loops back into itself manifesting as a great cyclical story that resides everywhere around us. And so what if it is just a story? Does that make it any less awesome? And I mean that, like in a literal sense, like awesome, like as in worthy of invoking awe and recognition. Because the thing is, when we sever stories from ourselves, when we exile them to a realm that we deem less powerful, we are cutting away at parts of ourselves. We are ignorantly debasing a whole system that resides within us regardless, motivating us on the most primal levels while claiming that we are separate from and superior to. We long for a world where once upon a time is still possible. Isn't that what everything around us is based on? This deep-seated need to live in a world that transcends our own? Is this not video games, movies, books, social media, and religion?
An unsigned review of Eureka in 1848 claimed that perhaps Poe saw that the universe is more poem than machine, and so it must be treated poematically. This is in direct opposition to the view from the world that he lived in. In a time where factories were being built and machines were taking over collective thought, it made sense to us as humans to see this new reality reflected in the universe itself. Yet here Poe is asking us to think in the language of metaphor, in the symbols and layers of story. Instead of seeing the universe as a great mechanical thing that has merely means and ends, causes and effects, he sees symmetry, a poetic dance between atoms, a gorgeous tension between self and other. And thus, only a poem will do when attempting to encapsulate such an origin story. Going back to Frankenstein, we learn that while science is capable of great feats and should not be dismissed, it lacks an underlying essence of intuition and emotion that informs our lives, whether we recognize it or not. What Poe is doing with Eureka, then, begins to make sense. By calling his work a prose poem, he is allowing this piece to stand outside of logical sense-making. He is confident in the value of his work, which, in some ways, was restructured and verified by later scientists, while still allowing it to be a work of creative fiction. He recognizes that in scientific rigidity, in axioms and logic, we're missing out on a fundamental part of human connection, and more so that truth can be told and discovered from dreams and intuitions. And in that way, it doesn't really matter if his science actually holds up. He realizes that metaphor, on its own merit, can be capital T true, but just in a different way. So what does all this have to do with healing? Um, I might have mentioned on the podcast before, I'm not sure, but I read once that all we ever experience is our own nervous system. And that is to say that all we ever know, see, or feel is our brain. And this is true for others too. They are experiencing their own nervous system, their own unique interpretations of everything that is said and done. Those interpretations are akin to story. They are steeped in metaphor, context, environment, and symbolism. We are in collective denial that fiction, the realm of dreams and mythology, still informs and transforms our reality needing to claim that anything that informs our thoughts, habits, and beliefs must be determined as fact. It must be rigidly and tangibly proven as certain, and therefore applicable to the whole. We like to believe that our own stories and interpretations are exactly the same for everyone else. The authors of In the House of the Moon tell a lovely little story that illustrates this point. To summarize... A great king comes to town with his majestic elephant, a creature that many have heard stories of, yet none have seen. Three blind men sneak into the king's camp at night to feel of this giant creature and bring news of it back to the rest of the village. When telling others of what they experience, the first man tells of a delicate and soft flesh, thin as parchment that fluttered in the wind. The second man rejects this outright, telling of a rough snake left uncoiled with bits of wiry hair. The third man argues with the other two even still, telling of something that felt like a giant narrowing tree trunk. In this way, none of the men can understand the whole of what they felt. 
No one gets the full picture of the elephant because each is so enamored with the piece he saw, asserting that this is the only right description. They cannot fathom that they have each that they each have a valuable and intrinsic piece of the whole, yet none has the whole in and of itself. They, like us, have forgotten two very important things. First, the intuition that story is a part of us, whether we see it or not. And secondly, that we share the same origin, that we are all part of a larger organic system. When we weaponize provability against ourselves and one another, we're left with a shattered reality. We feel the need to defend our perspective against an imaginary ideal of objective truth, and we are so caught up in the fact of our fact that we forget we are all unique manifestations of divine expression. Our work, then, is finding ways to lean into the unity that is natural to us. It is to find common ground while appreciating and respecting the crucial differences in perspective and experiences that we might encounter. It is in setting down the systems of beliefs that we have cultivated that tout one objective right way. It is to lean into the cyclical, the unfolding, the metaphor, the liminal. Our work is to once again become fluid, receptive, creative creatures, set free from the tight confines of mere practicality and logic. Because we are all of these things and more, and living outside of our divine potential leaves us feeling insecure, invalidated, and disconnected from our home and others around us. For example, so many times I've heard people tell stories of abuse and trauma and great wounds only to kind of like laugh it off or claim that it wasn't as bad as some other situations and maybe probably wasn't actually like, you know, traumatic. And this, this is all said with this kind of inherent attitude that there's some sort of qualifying awful standard for experiences that are scarring and that their personal experiences just don't quite meet that criteria. In reality, trauma, like our nervous systems, is like very subjective. Two people could survive the same incident and have vastly different experiences trying to integrate the incident into their lives. It doesn't mean that one was stronger or tougher than another, merely that no two experiences can be any more true than the other. And this is why it is harmful to assume that what is real to us is real to everyone in the same way. While we share the same source, we are all unique manifestations. Assuming otherwise keeps us from investigating, connecting, and celebrating both the connective tissue that unites us all, the magnetic force of unity that calls us all back to one another, but also from celebrating each other and each aspect of God that we encounter in each other every day. If you prefer biblical metaphor instead of pose, you can come to the same conclusion. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And so to love God is to love the people around you. To celebrate all that God is, is to celebrate all that humanity is. Even the humans who look, sound, and act differently than you. When we come to not only accept, but embrace the stories that surround us, we are initiating ourselves into an ancient and sacred world. We are breaking the limitations that our reality imposes on us and finding new language for love, for need, for life, and for death. We are seeing ourselves reflected in the whole, 
while finding new layers of beauty in our infinite manifestations. When we begin to honor what is true for us, we begin to see that each person's path is a vein running through a larger organic system. Some merge and cross, and others never meet. But inside, we are all composed of the same lifeblood. Seeing this, we begin to honor and respect that others' truths are true for them also. We can respect their reality without feeling the need to defend our own and learn to find beauty not only in our sameness, but also in our uniqueness. Comparisons become shallow and pointless. Validation for self and others becomes a mode of thinking, and empathy becomes a lifestyle. In this place, we can open ourselves to seeing and being seen in radical new ways, and the possibility of living in exultation for the world around us. We can make our way closer to the heart of the divine, taking rapture in both our original unity and the spiritual uniqueness that creation has gifted us with. So if you enjoyed what you heard here today, please share with your friends or leave a review wherever you find us. It makes a world of difference in getting this out here. And if you want to dive deeper, I'll leave my sources linked below. Our intro music, as always, is by Esther Garcia Gonzalez. And it is with deep joy and gratitude that I want to thank you for listening to Spiritual Storytelling.